Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, Adam. Hi, Andrew. So we are excited to come back to our interviews, which we've dropped for the last few weeks, just because we're reshifting our podcast format. But we are going to offer our interview discussions once in a while. Um, Adam, can you uh, explain how long ago was this interview done? Well, we make reference to the holiday season. So it was clearly recorded, I want to say in December, January. Um, So obviously the question arises, why are we showing it to you now? I mean, why didn't we show it to you then? It's because we had a lot of these longer interviews that ended up spanning two weeks each. Um, That's fine. Um, but why, why, are we, why are we showing it to you now? Are the, are the things that we were concerned with in December, January really that relevant still? And of course, you already know the answer because we're having this conversation. Like we wouldn't be like, psych, we're not doing the interview. <laughs> we're just gonna, I don't know, play checkers and yeah, but about the weather. To get our um, business out of the way first, um, this is actually part of a two-part discussion, but not with um, Thomas Vitebeck, um, who is our guest today. Um, it's, we have his advisor on for our next time we return to the interview. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, and we also have a really exciting roundtable discussion next week where we're going to have those from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room weigh in on how do they define themselves as a writer? How do they define their audience? this intersection between each of those questions. And then Adam, we get to uh, hear all of their responses and we get to debrief um, right. roundtables. So that's gonna be really exciting. I'm, I'm always excited for um, having our people in and having them just chat with each other about their process. Like we've done that a few times already and it, it works, it just, like there's a reason why we keep doing it. Yeah, and we've had a lot of voices, even with the poetry playhouse. So we're going to, that's really our um, reorientation of the spring season is having more listeners contribute. And we're actually going to start to offer on our social medias, um, at Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter, I'm, um, Adam is really managing the um, Facebook group, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So please join there because he asks a lot of really exciting questions. Um, I ask a lot, a lot of, of snarky comments. <laughs> yeah, and everyone enjoys them. Um, I do a lot of Twitter polls and we've got a lot of responses from that. So, you know, look for us on social media because we're going to ask you a lot of questions, especially about the round table. And we might most likely will use your ideas and uh, credit you. So please do respond to us. 
Um, yeah. I also just stepped into my own Instagram space. So maybe I'm going to start using my Instagram for Ivory Boiler Room uh, marketing, but there might be an Instagram eventually down the road, uh, but not yet. Oh, and we can announce now that um, www.theivorytowerboilerroom.com is now open um, and live. Yeah. We have um, our media director, Erica Grumet, to thank for really getting all of that out there. So thank you, Erica. Um, and it's been exciting. So um, yeah, Adam, can you explain to the listeners what That's exactly um, first your alternative title for this episode is? <laughs> the one we're not doing. So we were, we were batting this back and forth. I wanted to call it the real viscous fingering was the friends we met made along the way. And sadly, I... Uh, one physicist is laughing right now and everybody else, or, or like one person who's related to a physicist is laughing right now and everybody else is just scratching their heads until they make a hole in the cranium. Yeah, so there's a reason why... Um, I um, executively shot that down, uh, <laughs> but I wanted Adam to say it because, you know, Adam does use this space as a stand-up platform sometimes. Um, but like Adam said, this was done in the holidays. Um, we um, do reference some really um, direct examples from what we were going through with our writing group or we right. had just kind of started to gain more members in the writing group. So that's been settled a little because it has, the writing group now has a really consistent format um, mm -hmm. where I do it four days or five days, depending on the Friday. Um, and Adam manages now the writing group uh, Saturday mm -hmm. and he's a sub for Friday. Um, mm -hmm. So we still, um, want to stress that all everything that we say is still applicable. Um, maybe not with the exact examples, but the themes are well, very prevalent. The, the, the point is that like, if you, if you go back to where we would have been at the time, right? This was like, this was before the, the vaccines had really been announced. This was before people were really considering opening their lives back up and stuff like that. And the, the really dominant feeling in the world was loneliness. And so first of all, we do have an international audience. The United States has um, taken the lead in um, vaccination, although not nearly to the extent that I'm personally comfortable with, right? There, there are articles saying that we're not going to achieve herd immunity, which is yeah, sorry to about source of frustration. We're not, gonna reach, we're not gonna reach herd immunity. That's already been right, exactly. established. So that is though, right? We have immense, right? And Adam and I aren't necessarily, if you're tuning in for the first time, don't worry, we're not gonna now go into an NPR <laughs> special. We're not qualified to, um, I'm not, comfortable doing that with all of you. But Adam and I, I think it's good that we do have this conversation because we were just doing this behind the scenes that 
people are really negotiating how comfortable they are with risk assessment. Um, Adam and I are vaccinated, um, you know, but we are even talking about like, what's our comfortable, our comfortability level. Um, and it's going to be different for each person. And what does that I mean? Do, I do think like, so, so first of all, you may be listening to us from a country that's not as, as, as much opening up as, as ours is right now, right? India is currently going into lockdown again because the situation was so grossly mishandled at the, at the federal level. And, you know, we just yeah. Or you might be in Australia where they've had this managed. <laughs> They're like, what pandemic? Or New Zealand. Um, God. Um, but, anyway, but so we have. But the uh, other, oh, go ahead. Exactly. So there's a, there's a there's a range there's a range of of reactions. You may be you may still be in our December, so to speak. Um, or you may be thinking of like opening your life back up and like seeing people in person, or you may already be doing it. And there are still people in your life whose social calendars are in a state of recovery or not even yet in a state of recovery. And so it just, it's, it's useful to remember that this stuff is going to affect us for a very long time mm -hmm. and that we are we're far from being out of the weeds yet um a lot of the same conversations that we had back then we are still having now mm -hmm. and we talk a lot about well adam and i always have discussions about um how we're framing optimism. And that actually really comes yes. up a lot during this episode. And it's actually something we're still discussing because yeah. I think it's on everyone's mind about how secure can we feel about the state of affairs and your comfortability. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So we want to- One of the ongoing concerns is different people like, different people who like people who are who are really anxious to get back into the uh, a version of their pre-COVID life versus people who are really anxious to avoid the risks associated with that kind of behavior and so yeah so so and we're kind of modeling for you Adam and I a hybrid type of mode because we're still continuing the podcast um mm -hmm. Adam and I eventually might you know, and hopefully we will eventually do a in-person recording, which would be exciting. Um, but, you know, even if we do start to offer more in-person events, we're still going to offer our virtual podcasting and our right. writing group will be- right. This is know, something that- Done on Zoom. So yeah, I this think- is something that we got from the, from, the, from the pandemic period that we're gonna try to keep. Yeah, and I think and that, um, you know, right now I'm just thinking about what does it mean to do this type of virtual, what we've learned in this virtual space and carry it forward into a hybrid, a hybrid format. For me, that's how I'm seeing, like doing some things that I'm comfortable with. Like I've started to go to the university more in person. Um, but I still go on to my Zooms. So it's, 
I'm realizing both of these communities are going to exist. Like Zoom is not going away. And I'm happy that it's allowed for more accessibility. So um, sure. yeah, as always, I try to end on the glasses half full. Yeah, that's, a, no. that's a good point is that like so, something something that um, that I've seen bandied about a lot lately, especially in um, especially in um, per, uh, people with among people with disabilities is like the uh, pe people people with disabilities have been trying to get zoom meetings for ages or the equivalent of zoom meetings like i can't come to the meeting something some something doesn't work that prevents me from leaving the house when you would like me to so can i join you via zoom and of course the answer was always no but so, but the moment that everybody else needed it it was magically available so um so the the hope is that people who 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 have always needed this stuff are going to continue to be able to get it. Exactly, and you'll hear us bring up a lot about trying Adam and I trying to do this cross disciplinary conversation with Thomas, and we do a lot of STEM and humanities intersections, and I think. Right. In a way, we do a type of hybrid interdisciplinary conversation. So it makes a lot of sense that yeah, Andrew has been dusting off things that he learned as a chemistry major before switching to English. Yeah, you'll hear my uh, exciting times in the organic chem lab, um, which I still thankfully recall fondly. Um, but I did love that eventually I went full throttle into my literature major um, and then got into my ancient Greek studies. Um, but yeah, so we welcome you all. Um, thanks for continuing. And for those of you who are new, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We um, really hope, we love to hear your feedback. So, um, oh, you can also now email us too, which is exciting at Ivory, wait, I think it's, We'll, we'll put it. We'll put it in the description. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes right now. We'll put it. I'll put it in the show notes for all of you. <laughs> um, and it'll include our all of our social media links too. So, without further ado, here is our conversation with Thomas. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We have a special guest today, Dr. Thomas Vitabeg just graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in physics. And would you like to tell us what your specialization was, what your, uh, what, what your dissertation was about, et cetera? Yeah, thank, thanks for having me on, Adam and Andrew. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Chicago in uh, fluid dynamics, uh, mostly studying something called the viscous fingering instability. Um, the what now? Yeah, wait, what is, what, that sounded like a slur. Can you say that again? You know, it happens often, but it's called the viscous fingering instability, or if you want it in a more uh, formal way, it's sometimes called the Safman-Taylor instability, but it's a type of uh, branching pattern uh, growth that can occur. Huh. Okay, so okay. what's a branching pattern growth? There's going to be a lot of these types of moments. in this. Yeah, interview. no, that's perfect. So 
maybe the most common example that you can see in nature is just the way that tree branches form, right? You have some kind of main trunk, and then as you go up the tree, right, splits into branches and sub-branches and things like that. And this is a type of archetype of, of pattern formation that occurs in a variety of places in nature, right? There's, there's here, you can also see it in kind of, uh, when you're forming river basins, right? When rain comes down and it, it's falling and it kind of channels into rivers, it starts as small rivulets and it eventually forms one uh, large river, right? So this is another type of, I guess, if you look at it, well, that's the not the way the water branch. flows, but the other way, that's an also a similar type of branching pattern. Um, and I guess the physics behind how all these different things form are pretty similar. And so the, the Saffman-Taylor instability that I studied in graduate school is one such thing where you, you get branching patterns when you push a low viscosity fluid, something like water, into a higher viscosity fluid, something like honey, right, wow. in a confined geometry. And so in, in the experiments that I did, this is something done where you just have two glass plates that are spaced by a very thin washer or something, and then you inject fluids in there. But out in the world, it more, happenly, more commonly happens in uh, granular material like sand, stuff like that. Okay. But it's a very easy to control experiment. And so physicists love those types of things where you can do experiments that are very controlled and try and learn something uh, about the broader world from there. So you end up getting interesting branching patterns in between the disks that you've separated with a washer and then you um, you have equations that describe the branching patterns. That's, that's the gist. Yeah, that's the gist of it. So the, basically the idea is that the, the glass plates are to make the system something called quasi 2D, which basically means that if I just look at it from the top, I should be able to get all of my information out from just looking at that. And I can kind of neglect anything that's going on in this very small length scale of the gap. Mm -hmm. um, and so the branching patterns occur when you're looking at this thing kind of top down, when you're injecting these fluids, they form these, uh, these right. branching uh, patterns. So I'm curious, is this the first time you're conveying your research like this to humanities minded oh. uh, well, scholars? I guess specifically to humanities, probably this is the first time. But one nice thing is at the at U Chicago, every year that we had a kind of uh, a physics outreach um, <laughs> event. So right around Christmas time, I guess the beginning of December, end of November, our department puts on something called Physics with a Bang. Oh, where, that's adorable. Uh, yeah, it's super fun. Uh, my advisor, Sidney Nagel, and another soft matter physicist, Heinrich Jaeger, put on a, a kind of show for, for the kids in the area and adults who are interested. And then it's just a, it's like an hour long uh, bonanza of physics demos. Uh, and then accompanying that there's, you can have tour, they have tours of all the kind of physics and chemistry and bio labs mm. um, in the neighboring institute. And so I usually would do uh, tours in our lab for people that come in and, and do one of these viscous fingering demos. Uh, and the kids love it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to try. They're really to, disappointed. Well, that, and I'm going to try not to continue harping on. I mean, the sexual nature of your research, but I, um, uh, I can try to remember to stop calling that. No, 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 no. <laughs> continue using the phrase because that is um, in the textbook. So 
Yeah, I hate to be that guy, but if I showed up for a viscous fingering instability demonstration and all I saw was some physics bullshit, I would be so disappointed. <laughs> well, at, at an event for children, I, I hope you're not that disappointed. Oh, okay, yeah, if it's an event I, for children, <laughs> then, yeah. then I, I withdraw really the accusation. Right <laughs> right um, but Why is it called fingering? Can we, can we yeah, at I least put that matter to rest? It, it's it's called fingering um because if you i i don't know can i show images no but you can send no, them okay. to us at, you, yeah, i you mean can you can yeah, you, you can, can show them to us and we can include the slides in or the youtube videos or whatever you'd like in in the okay. notes i see yeah i was just going to do a quick google google search for some images so i'll set, i'll try and remember to send you that later but basically the idea is that um, for a lot of uh, these types of instabilities where you want to see patterns, it's something that's happening in an in interface, right? So if you imagine that I have one, one fluid on this side and one fluid on this side, you can draw a boundary between these two things. And so some kind of initial state before anything's gone unstable or any patterns formed, you can imagine that this interface is just kind of a, a straight flat line, right? Mm. But once you start to push these fluids, right? You're trying to push this lower viscosity fluid into this higher one. What happens is that any small uh, bumps on this interface, right, will become accentuated. But the way that it occurs is that you, you get these very long, thin tendril-like features. And because you have something that's, whose aspect ratio is long, like a finger, <laughs> these types of patterns are usually called fingers, fingering structures, oh, like patterns. So it's about and the dimension of the finger. That's right. It's usually because they're they're extended and, and narrow. And so that's why they end up calling this a fingering process. Yeah. But I'm or, sure this isn't the first time that you've heard the sophomoric sexual. No, I, I, I yeah. My cohort love to make fun of uh, <laughs> the, the name <laughs> of this, this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I'm amazing sure. to me um, in a larger sense how much time we spend being told by adults not to make puerile jokes about things like this. And then we become adults and we're like, what, what were they even talking about? Puerile jokes are the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm just curious, Thomas, how did you get interested in fluid dynamics? Yeah, that's a good job. That's, that's a very specific field, it seems like. Yeah, so you know, I it's pretty random, I would guess, in in some sense, right? In in that when I started kind of my academic life, in a way, I was in high energy nuclear physics, right? Uh, I initially started doing science at Stony Brook University, and in their physics department, nuclear physics is kind of the the biggest area, right? That's because there's there's this heavy ion collider out at Brookhaven National Lab on the island. And so I had started working in, in that kind of field, but then after undergraduate and after a master's program, kind of working on that type of stuff, um, when I went to U Chicago, I, I kind of wanted to try something different. And so during the first year, all of the graduate students have to do some kind of lab rotation. And so I had done a lab rotation in a, a biophysics lab, and I quickly found out that that was not for me. And so after that first year, for the 
for the first summer of the graduate program, I wanted to find a lab to work in. And so I reached out to a bunch of people whose stuff I thought was cool. I'd reached out again to some high energy physics people, to some atomic uh, physics people um, doing some quantum information stuff. And then also my then advisor, uh, Sid, um, who is doing soft matter, which is kind of a, a, a broad, a broader field than just fluid dynamics. And, but there was something about talking with Sid that was just much more exciting than talking to a lot of these other PIs. He was just very, he just seemed super interested in things in general and was just, I don't know, very inquisitive and, and interesting to talk to. And so I think it was more him that I was interested in working for necessarily than, than doing fluid dynamics. But I guess a consequence of working with my advisor is that I ended up in fluid dynamics. Yeah. And you might once have, I was there, it's super fun. <laughs> and you might have mentioned this, but PI is not private investigator, I'm assuming. So what is a PI? Right, yeah, PI stands for a principal investigator. I think it's a term oh. used for funding agencies for grants and stuff. Okay, I was kind of close. Yeah, <laughs> <pretty> <laughs> a little different um, uh, job description. Uh, so. We always love, especially you're our, um, you get to be our lucky number one uh, scientist. Oh, um, that's exciting. I think on the podcast, unless I have sadly forgotten. Well, that, that, would, that would be cruel. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I think we've mostly been, I mean, we've had anthropologists. Mm -hmm. we've def so we've definitely had people who work with numbers, but not. But yeah, no, but nobody, nobody who works with viscous fingering. No, no, no. Yeah, you're our first viscous fingerer. Um, oh, that's good. That's good to know. <laughs> uh, but we, yeah, so we weigh heavily on performing arts and humanities just from Adam and um, the research that we both do. Yeah. But I'm very curious. Um, we love to talk about teachers who informed our work and our decisions into getting into certain professions. So is it safe to say that you have a narrative that matches an educator who really shaped your path, even in high school? Was there a physics teacher that you had who got you interested? Well, I was actually, I, physics was probably my, my worst science subject in high school. I was very good at math and, and chemistry, um, but in New York, there's these kind of standardized tests in every subject you have to do, and I, I, I scored the worst in my physics one, so. Oh, no. Are these the dreaded regions? Yeah, the regents exams. That's right. Yeah. I didn't have to take that. But you're lucky. <laughs> okay. Well, we have our other standardized tests, but yeah, so yeah. you scored the worst in physics. So how do you yeah. end up majoring in physics in undergrad? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I, I don't remember who it was, but one of my, it was either a guidance counselor or a teacher said, oh, you should try and do some kind of research at somewhere, right? Just because you, you're good at math, so you should try and do research with someone, right? Sensible. So uh, I thought, oh, it'd be great to try and do, to work in a chemistry lab, because at the time I was very interested in, in, in chemistry, and so one of our family friends is someone is a chemist at, at Brookhaven National Labs. So 
I tried talking with him and talking to my dad about trying to arrange for me to work there. But uh, since I was under 18 at the time, I was not allowed to go to a national lab. And so my dad was like, oh, well, I know another guy at Stony Brook who's a professor, who's Tom Hemmick, who works in physics. Why don't you try working with him for the summer? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and then I started working with him and I didn't really, at the, at the time, I didn't care if it was physics or, or chemistry. It was just kind of fun to be doing research. But working with uh, Tom Hemmick really made me love the subject of physics. And so then when I eventually got to Stony Brook for college, uh, I decided to take some physics classes and I enjoyed it. So I, I kept going along that route. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I worked in a couple different physics labs. And so I would say it's probably, it's probably Tom Hemmick's fault that I got into <laughs> physics. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it works the same. It works the same in our divisions as well, right? I mean, you end up going to, I mean, I, I still remember the reason why I went into 16th and 17th century British literature. It's because of a professor I had in college um, named Anne Lake Prescott, who was just the funniest and silliest person. I've ever encountered, but you know, there was something really like powerful underneath all of the fun. Um, and she, she, she's not a Shakespeare scholar. She was a Spencer scholar teaching Shakespeare. And so she brought in all of these like cultural items that are equally true for anyone who works in that period. Um, and so we got to see the engravings and the uh, various articles anyway. It's, it's really, it's really so simple that when you have a good teacher, you love the subject. And when you don't have a good teacher, you don't love the subject. But I would say in Thomas's case, it's a little different because you were in the lab experience. So like, like yeah. my investment in the humanities really did come from K through 12 education. Like I was always just surrounded by, I think, an incubus of um, an incubator, not an incubator. <laughs> That's a very different meaning. Um, <laughs> I'm starting to think about. There's actually. Yeah, I was wondering where you were going yeah, with that. There's a post story with an incubus. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to mean it in that way. Um, but an incubator of very humanities and science and math um, supportive systems. But I also was, um, you know. I was that student who others in my class were probably looking back a little annoyed with because I might have seemed like the brown nosing student. Uh, <laughs> but I was just always after class asking all these questions and I wanted to find resources in the library. But yeah, I agree with Adam in that there is a few shaping factors for why you eventually want to go into graduate work especially right. well and so let's let's keep let's keep the conversation going in in the direction thomas alluded to um which is that one of the things that we were interested in talking to you about is that you actually finished your phd congratulations thank you congratulations during 2020 mm -hmm. And so you're in the thick of what, what I've been looking at from a distance. And Andrew, of course, is also in the thick of it in a way. But we want to get as many perspectives as possible. How are academics 
-hmm. you know, adult students, uh, students who have to pay their own rent, uh, dealing with this economic crisis and biological crisis, the, the whole thing. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I guess alluding to the, the economic uncertainties, right? I think being a STEM student, uh, or at least a sciences student, I don't know about mathematicians, but at least being in the sciences, I think um, we don't have to, there isn't as much, I guess, economic pressure as, as might be expected, right? Most, most people in the sciences are, are funded for the duration of their, their graduate degree, right? And so in that sense, there wasn't, at least at UChicago, there wasn't any risk of, of graduate science students is, uh, you know, getting kicked out of the, <laughs> out of the school or, or losing funding and, and stuff like that, right? So at least that aspect wasn't, wasn't a concern for us, which right. is very fortunate. Um, which I don't know. It, it's probably different for for humanities students, right? A lot. Of, I, I know a lot. But it's of you also guys different for people who or... go to a, a lower tier institution. I think U Chicago. Nobody goes to U Chicago and worries that they're going to run out of funding. That's right. Whereas we've talked to humanities students at Stony Brook who get four years of funding, and it's it's barely enough to keep the lights on for those four years. Meanwhile, the average length of a PhD in that field will be seven years and mm -hmm. your financial planning advisor is saying well get better get a a spouse with a job but again i don't know i don't think and it, i hope it doesn't come across like i'm the contrarian here but i don't think that's about the tears i think it's actually about the humanities versus the stem because i oh, know that's true so many, as well i know so many in the stem at stony brook and they're fine trust yeah. me there, sure some of them are pulling in 40000 a year. Um, that's not everyone, but that can happen with grants. Um, I mean, good for them, but wow. But again, it's so hard to get that kind of grant. Yeah. Um, I've in been the, lucky. I've yeah. gotten a few grants in the English department externally. Um, fellowships, I'll specify. Right. That's not necessarily a a common trajectory. I mean, people are looking for fellowship opportunities, but it's not necessarily, oh, everyone's going to get an outside funding opportunity. Yeah, I mean, would you say that, Adam? It's not necessarily no. par for the course. No, I, um, for me, outside funding was um, working as the tutor. Yeah, it's you like- call that a grant, but that's a stretch. Yeah, in, in the humanities though, and I know this from other I'm sure at U Chicago in their English department, there'd be similar stories about them trying to find different side hustles to make ends yeah. meet because there yeah. is a precarity that exists in humanities of, you know, well, I'm done with this year of funding, what happens now? And, um, but you're saying that didn't really, that wasn't a concern that you fa were faced with in the physics department. Yeah. Uh Luckily, I didn't. I didn't have to deal with that, as you were as you were alluding to, right? I guess the funding for for graduate students is baked into the the grants, and for I guess experimental sciences, that's multi year time scales, right? So it's that wasn't an issue. I think for some theorist colleagues, 
they have a bit more precarious funding situation. So they usually have to TA or do something else to supplement. Um, and, Wait, but, so, that, so what, was that what's the structure? Oh. Well, I was Sorry, just going to say, is that an option for you then? You don't have to teach if you're not a theoretical physicist. You, it depends. So uh, typically all graduate students will have to TA in their first year in the program. Um, and then I got a, a, a teaching fellowship where I, I got to TA a couple more times. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, well, if you're saying, either. Sorry, Thomas, when you're using TA, you're not using it to mean your own personal instructing of a course. You mean it in a breakout session. Is that right? Yeah, so you're not you're not going to be the the main person teaching a course typically. I don't I don't think they do that at, at U Chicago. It but it's it's either going to be you're leading a discussion section or you're in charge of teaching the laboratory courses for a class. And that's so fascinating because it's the complete inverse in usually in English departments where you instruct your own course. Um and I think that's that's yeah. similar for humanities uh, departments at, at U Chicago as well. Uh, yeah. One of my friends in, in Near Eastern Studies, she definitely taught her own classes. Right. So, so I think doing, just, yeah, in contact with because I think this is um, essential for those who are uh, tuning into this interview. You keep in contact with those from different departments at U Chicago in the grad but, programs. Uh, sort of. I, I think it's it's more happenstance than than active going out and connecting, right? It's just that one of my... <laughs> you don't have a list that's like, okay, I need an art, hist I need an art historian, check. I have my <laughs> chemist, check. That's right. I mean, that'd be great for trivia nights, but it's usually just kind of randomly, randomly meeting people. So I've had the chance, one of my uh, physics colleagues, his, his wife, is a humanities, was also a humanities graduate student at the same time, right? And so through mm -hmm. going to their parties, you would get to meet people in other departments. Um, some people are more involved in like the graduate student union and there you'll meet people from all over. Mm -hmm. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I guess science graduate school is kind of just like a job because you're going into a lab every day. And so you don't interact too much with, with other departments if you're just doing that. Yeah. So how many hours would you spend in your lab when you were doing your, um, your research? Oh, yeah. Uh, it kind of varies, right? So it's, it's a minimum, I don't know, you kind of treat it like a job most days. So you try and be there from nine to five or six, right? Every day mm. of the week. And then sometimes your experiments go long. So you stay later or you come in on weekends or, or something. When you say like try that. to, this is self-regulatory yep oh okay yeah so so, not everyone is doing this you're saying some people might some people are shifted certainly people i know would have uh they would they would roll in at 10 or 11 and stay till nine <laughs> um one of my friends his his uh his fiance like went back to korea for a bit and so he became a like 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. person for a while. <laughs> and so, wow. I don't know, it's, it's as long as you're getting, I think I've heard my advisor say, as long as you're getting your work done, you can set your own hours, right? 
then of but course it's it's common... what does getting your work done mean yes that what i was going to ask it's so it's not common for someone to be like well i just had this amazing brunch okay 12 p.m to three that sounds good <laughs> yeah you usually not okay. uh I mean, there might be a day where you're feeling super not motivated, right? And then, mm. but that that can happen to anybody. But I think, I don't know, most most people that I interacted with are very passionate about their work. So they're kind of, they're very excited to to get in and, and do research and be working on stuff, right? I, I don't think I did. Sorry, just because I'm so naive. Like, when I think about the lab, I just think back to my undergrad organic chem lab. And, right, that's a course. So we're all in rows with each other, but um, are you around people or are you doing this in an isolating uh, space? Yeah, so it, it, that, that depends a lot on the department you're in. So this idea of kind of like bench work where there's people just lined up next to each other is super common in, in biology labs hmm. and chemistry labs a little bit. Um, and then in physics, yeah, just is very highly dependent on your your subfield, I guess. But I I would mostly I, I kind of worked on my own projects, so I didn't have anyone working with me on things for most of the time during my PhD program. Mm. But you'd still have people in the kind of same general area as you, um, and then there's also shared office space. So you everyone has their own kind of like working work computer. So if you need to analyze data or read papers or whatever, right? That's done in kind of a communal space. Mm. But then whenever you have to go in and, and do your physical experiment, right? Then you have your own kind of section of a lab and whether people are there or not at the same time as you is kind of random. <laughs> and see, this is the nostalgia I have for the lab experience because what I loved most about my physics, I did take physics as an undergrad, just for those out there, please don't test me on anything. I would appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> Especially, Thomas, you start to ask me to draw the diagram uh, where the uh, uh, energy is going or being transferred. I'm gonna, have, <laughs> I'm gonna have a conniption, um, but <laughs> I got through. Um, but the nostalgia I have is for that community spirit, and I think those who follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, um, we've created a writing group where people who are in the humanities are now checking in with each other, but that space you describe about the lab really doesn't exist in infrastructure in the humanities. I no. mean, it's not common to really, for me and Adam to say, work on an article together. It's starting to happen, but sadly- well, There's actually an economic uh, prejudicial factor, which is that, which is that um, in the humanities, you, unlike for instance in physics you really have to publish your own articles right and um you you can be the lead the lead uh person on an article in physics and that's that's great but in humanities you have to you have to just write you have to do the whole thing yourself and so um it's like it's like um well you can co-author but you can are you going to be recognized for a job promotion? Are you going right, to get exactly. credit? And it's even like, um, I don't want to make this so meta because you're listening to this podcast. We're part of a podcast because now I'm calling out different audiences. But, you know, creating a podcast like this, 
the main motive Adam and I really did this is because we could address concerns like this that weren't really happening in a um, space right. with those faced um, with certain graduate student crises or just questions and concerns. Um, right. We wanted to talk about some of the things people don't talk about. Yeah. But I was faced with a few um, with feedback about the podcast, like, well, how is this going to address uh, the university community? Why would graduate students be interested in this? Why would faculty be interested in this? And I feel whenever you do some kind of collaborative project, what Adam is saying, there is a lot of, I don't know if I would call it pushback. That might be a strong term, but there's, um, thinking about the more collaborative you are sometimes, the further you're going away from your actual goal. It's economic pushback. It's not necessarily, it's, uh, take, so take my advisor, Aisha Ramachandran, who was at Stony Brook, moved to Yale, and is one of the more outspo outspoken people I know. And I value her for that. She's usually the first person to state economic realities in no uncertain terms. Hmm. Um, when I when I first met her, when I was considering going to Stony Brook, um, she sort of grilled me on my plans for how to how to like what I was going to do with this doctorate and and how I was going to get through the program, things like that. Uh, when I brought her an idea for um, writing an article, a, a chapter in a book about something, I don't remember what it was. She said, "Books aren't." Uh, books aren't going to get you tenure. Simple as that. Writing, writing, an, writing a chapter in a book is not going to be as valuable in the in the pyramid mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it in the on the ladder as and, uh, and writing chapter. You just if since there's going to be people listening, I'm sure from all different. Sorry, I mean, you. Um, it's it's fairly common in the humanities for somebody to say, "I want to write, I want to edit a book of essays about, let's say, medieval clowning yeah, or Renaissance uh, traveling theater companies yeah. or usually, whatever." Yeah, and you, every you meet the people usually through a conference. So, like the introductory is like Adam was presenting on the medieval clown. Let's just take example. <laughs> and um, uh, very Monty Python. Like uh, I was going to say, Quentin Tarantino. Okay, <laughs> different type of clown. But okay, so and then different I'm type of medieval. Yeah, and I'm presenting on um, the dynamic between Romeo and Juliet. I know I'm taking it out of historical periods, but sure, whatever, um, whatever. So just for the point, and then Thomas is working on <laughs> death and Macbeth. <laughs> Okay, so you were all really interested with the themes. Adam might propose, oh, I'd love to do a collected edition of your talks as essays. Well, right. we each now contribute to this book that will come out in a year. It's not recognized by the powers that be, usually that grant well, the, promotions. The issue is that you can't search it, right? We do a, so much of our research on JSTOR, Project Muse, places like that, and you can't necessarily get access to these book chapters. Oh. 
And Wait. so they don't end up getting quoted in new articles and in new books. And so they, so they don't end up joining the, the it's actually, we're actually ending up having a conversation about about viscous fingering because it's it's about because it's about how these smaller rivulets of information join the larger river of academic discourse. It's true. That's a good metaphor. But, <laughs> but yeah, Thomas, I think um, like what we're describing, you could search it. The issue is, because I've relied a lot on these edited collections for some of my research, because they, I find that they tend to be the most helpful for understanding your intervention in a field, because you're going to get different theoretical views yeah, absolutely. of one text, especially. Like, there's something called the um, critical editions of a text, and I love them because I'm working on the picture of Dorian Gray soon with my chapter, and I can now understand, oh, this is how this scholar approaches it from this historical view, the feminist view, the queer view, the Marxist view, whatever. Yeah, those could be a approach. good start. Um, but unfortunately, that scholar might not have gotten the credit they deserve because it was compiled in this manner. Right. Well, so so the, um, we've gone pretty far afield, but I think I think it is useful I mean, this was never going to be an easy conversation. Um, I mean, you, prob Thomas, you probably know more about our subjects than we know about yours. Um, but the 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 fact of the matter is that we we end up having to have these like kind of detailed conversations about like the the both the intellectual and the economic apparatus by which people produce content mm. right and by which people um further their fields and further their own careers because that puts pressure on you to produce certain types of work and not others mm -hmm. and it's 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 fair to point out that that talking to uh, a scientist um is going to lead to these revelatory moments uh in which we understand the ways in which our field is lacking right there there should be labs there absolutely should be labs and and i guess there are for the more scientific parts of our fields like handwriting recognition and um paper analysis and stuff like that but there should be there should be larger groups and one of the things that we do with our writing group is we is we percolate ideas back and forth and yeah. we make well, we writing created, a more communal activity. We created a writing lab. We, and, I guess so. Um, yeah, but I. Well, I just wanted to, I guess, go back to this point about there there being labs and stuff, right? I, I think the experience of a a theoretical physicist, at least, is probably more similar to, uh, the endeavors of a humanities major than than an experimentalist, right? Like the only reason there is this kind of shared space, is because, experimentalists have to physically, have things to interact with, right? Whereas endeavors of the mind, you can you can do anywhere, which unfortunately means that then funding institutions don't care to give you space for it, right? But a lot of, I know, theory people kind of don't have as much of a sense of community or they have to work a lot harder to have it, right? Like usually you have your office and then mm -hmm. there isn't kind of a, a larger pool of, of, of people to kind of bounce bounce ideas back and forth on, which is sounds as, is kind of a similar 
detriment in, in humanities for that aspect, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I guess in, in light of the pandemic, right, one pro of, of that type of more, uh, you know, intellectual pursuit of humanities or theory is that, I guess, being barred from a physical location isn't a hindrance to progress, right? Mm -hmm. The one thing that's definitely been a, a problem with for for experimental scientists during COVID is that it's just it's very difficult to get work done nowadays um, because you 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 kind of need to have access to a location that's shared by many many people. So so let's talk more about that. How how have you been holding up uh, in your in in your lab work? You personally, you collectively. Um, what are some what are some new obstacles in your life? What are some ways that you've been getting around them, etc.? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for for the time at at New Chicago, right? I was kind of lucky in that that this pandemic was in the last few months before I was defending. So I was kind of focusing on finishing up writing and, and some last analysis. I didn't have to do as much experiment, but hmm. the, the things that I did have to do, right, it's just, it becomes more burdensome. Um, and so, especially in kind of a group dynamic, right, where, I don't know, in my, in my lab, you have maybe, there, there's eight or, or nine people that all want to use the same space, right? So now you have to be a lot more in each other's lives in terms of scheduling and, and figuring out when people are going to be around. And then whenever you do go in, right, you always have to follow kind of a set of safety protocols. And so a lot of the time at the beginning of the pandemic was, was involved with kind of what is a good safety procedure for people. So there's, there's some uncertainty in like how often people can go in, how many people can go in at a time, you know, how are you going to make sure that the state, the places is kind of sanitized and safe for you to work, safe for other people to work after you leave, mm. things like that. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people ended up, you know, trying to go <laughs> more theoretical in what they were doing, right? One of my, <laughs> one of my colleagues who was doing experiments uh, during this pandemic, she, she has completely switched over to doing computer simulations of things, right? Because then you don't have to worry about going in and endangering yourself or, or other people. Um, mm. But this kind of thing where now you're you're being forced to to isolate yourself right it it's detrimental if if you're very used to being part of a community right? and so uh i think yeah not being able to always interact with people is definitely is definitely a hard thing to transition to but right um, now you're in you're doing a postdoc right at a lab yeah so so after UChicago, I'm now at, at Brandeis University. Mm. And that's also, I thought it was gonna be more challenging given how, how infrequent people would go to lab at UChicago. But I think uh, since I've joined Brandeis, I've actually been going into lab three, around three times a week on average. Which, is that a lot? It seems like a lot. I mean, in a normal work environment, I would go in five or six times a week. <laughs> But uh, three times is definitely a lot more than I would have felt comfortable doing it at Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is that Brandeis has um, mandatory testing. Mm -hmm. So they, 
they're collaborated with something called the Broad Institute, where they kind of require you to have, if you're on campus, you need to be tested every 84 hours for, oh, wow. for COVID. And you, within 24 hours, you'll get back the results from your test, right? Uh, I That's think twice a week. Yeah. But, See, but I, I, yeah. I, can, I can do what you can do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess knowing that you're being tested and everyone else is being tested makes, or at least it made me feel a lot more comfortable going in frequently, right? Because mm -hmm. at least, you know, you know if you have it or if you don't have it and people can do contact tracing very efficiently. At Chicago, at the time I was there, they were not doing testing. And if they were, it was very, it was very hard to, to get tested if you didn't have symptoms. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Just because I guess they, they didn't have the resources for it. Uh, I think now they've instituted kind of voluntary weekly testing for people, which I think it should be mandatory if you're, if you want people to actually come in and work. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's Stony Brook's case is volunt. Well, it might, I think it's mandatory for um, those who report on campus. Um, mm. But I took my first test a few weeks ago. Um, and it was voluntary. Um, but like what you're describing, well, but I don't have to be in my office. Um, like you said, there is a pro of doing work on your laptop and I can move around to different places. Um, but at the same time, it's so interesting because what you're saying, Thomas, with your um, lab physicists uh, minded, I mean, that's not the right term, but there's, oh, applied physicists. There you go, that's the term, right? There's the theoretical and then there's the applied. Is that true or what's the it, other? It would be called experimental. Experimental, thank a you. Applied physics is another field. Oh, okay, so we're not talking about applied physics. <laughs> um, but, um, so the experimental friends of yours, um, they were then looking for more um, virtual or even just work that doesn't have to be based in the lab. But what's so interesting to me is those of us who were doing more isolating work, but you know, if I was in the um, department walls, I would at least see a few people and I could wave and have a conversation. We lost that opportunity. Right. Working for yeah. So then now we're looking for the opposite. We're looking for spaces like this to have interviews and have these conversations. So I just find it so interesting because in a way you're doing the same thing just in a reverse pattern. I guess a little bit. I, I would say that, you know, there's still the, the human side of things, right? And so I think during this whole pandemic, everyone is trying to get some kind of form of community and, and contact with other people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I think one of the things that I'd, I'd miss the most is that if, because there's this community in the, in the laboratory space, right, in the, in the shared office space, right, you always had kind of random chit chat and you could always just vent to people if you wanted, right? And then now, now if you're isolated all the time and you don't have the chance to talk to people, right, that can build up a lot of mental health issues if you're not careful and you can't, you know. Yeah, venting is huge. Yeah. I was surprised by by how how much I missed like those kind of 
small interactions during the day, right? But um, yeah, I think that's yeah. that's probably been one of the harder parts. Well, do you feel like you found a strategy or a system that's working for you right now to uh, satisfy those kernels of chit chat? Well, at, yeah, when I was at U Chicago, we we had started to kind of figure it out as a as a group for for the group that I worked in. We would do like daily Zoom lunches was okay. And we would try and do like weekly walks where everyone would get together and socially distance and wear masks. And then at least there you could walk and, and chit chat and stuff. But all these things, I don't know, it still feels over Zoom, it still feels weird to have kind of like normal conversations that you would have in it does. person. It does. Especially because when you're when you're at a department, um, I mean, this is my experience. Most like a lot of the conversations you would have, you would have standing up and that gives you a different dynamic. Mm -hmm. and so, so it's e even, or, or you would, or you would be sitting at the person's desk and you could like, uh, in front of the person's desk. Um, and you could like put your hands on the desk. You could like write things down in your notebook. There was, there's, there's a whole sense of, of physical, there's a whole language that being in the same physical space as another person imparts to your conversation that we've just lost. And presumably we're finding workarounds, we're finding a new language involved in the Zoom, uh, which clearly I'm illiterate in because I'm the only one who doesn't have the massive bookcases behind me. I didn't get that memo. <laughs> um, well, I think what you're saying, you lose the tactility. Exactly. Can you guys even hear me talking to you when I don't have the massive bookcases behind me? It's like... <laughs> Is that is that affecting my is that affecting my ability to broadcast? I'm 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 suddenly very concerned. Well, but even what you're saying, Adam, is we are analyzing not only Thomas's response to our questions, but we're also analyzing if we have our video cameras on. You know, how do I appear now? How am I conveying yes. my gestures? How yes. am I speaking? Yes. What does it look like for? You're doing a performance. Yes. I think the performance is, um, if you're theatrically minded, it doesn't bother me because I feel that it's always some type of um, recorded film in a way, but that doesn't necessarily make for an authentic experience. Um, like sometimes I'll end a conversation with Adam or my advisor, and I think, did I just say that to that person or did I make that up? Because it doesn't have that same finality. Right. No, that, that makes sense. So, and I think, Thomas, you're saying you were trying to find Zoom. Yeah. But, Zoom could help fulfill that. Yeah, but it's definitely not, not even close, I, I think, right? And I it's think not. part of it is what you're talking about of, of like, yeah, you're constantly, since you can constantly see yourself, right? You're constantly critiquing and, and that's taking up some mental space. And yeah, it's probably that's definitely part of it. So I, I'm curious, um, when you have a department like this, that suddenly experiences this level of pressure and stress, just on top of the normal routine, because it's not like being a physicist was easy. Yeah in 2019 and then it got hard in 2020 
you were still doing physics for 10 hours a day. It's not like, just like being, just like doing what Andrew's doing, finishing up the dissertation or making progress on the dissertation uh, with a view of finishing it is not easy, right? So, so it's not like we were all lounging about and then COVID happened and now our lives are difficult. So I'm curious what, um, I'm curious what your department has been doing to nudge you guys in the direction of sanity. Mm. I mean, you've said that your finances were never under threat, which is far more than a lot of graduate students can say. Mm -hmm. And maybe like two thirds of the entire game, right? Because it's, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do for someone's psychological stability if you can't do anything for their economic stability. Mm -hmm. But so, so we've talked about that. We've fetched about that. We'll, we'll table that for a moment. What else is there? Uh, what, what else has, your, has your, your previous department been doing and your current department been doing to make sure that people in your department don't go insane, get depressed, et cetera? The, all the things that we've been hearing that people are doing okay. as, as the unfortunately logical and legitimate responses to the, to the current pressures. Mm. Yeah. So I would say that pr primarily the response that I've, I've seen has been on kind of the, the group level where advisors kind of take into their own hands the, the kind of like mental well-being of their graduate students. But then at Chicago, the physics department also tried to do something, right? They, they didn't just say, oh, well, just deal with it, right? They, uh, the chair would, was hosting me weekly kind of town hall meetings, right? Where it was just a time where anyone that had issues or problems could come and chat with the chair and with other graduate students about things they were facing. And they would try and kind of workshop ideas and, and see if there were things that the department could do uh, in kind of a direct way to try and help people with the problems they had. So I guess I think one thing that came out of this is that all the people, all the graduate students that were taking classes, they weren't sure if they all had the, the resources at home that they needed. So I think one thing they ended up doing was, again, New Chicago was able to afford this, but <laughs> they were able to give all the graduate students taking classes like iPads from the department and stuff like that to try and help out. I don't know how much that helped, but <laughs> yeah at least they're trying to do something to alleviate problems, right? But, um, and then, yeah, that, that's the main thing that I remember from the, the department. I think they also tried to supplement some normal things, right? Usually there's like weekly uh, colloquia and now you can't travel. So they couldn't have speakers come in from other places. So during the pandemic, they swapped over to having I guess local people giving colloquia talks as a try to as a as a way to try and make it seem normal, <laughs> some sense of like routine and scheduling in the day, which I think is a good thing. Well, sometimes it's the opposites. Uh, now that you don't have to travel, you can just get someone from Indonesia to to give a talk, and as long as the as long as the times work out for everyone, you can. I mean, that's, that's what Andrew and I have been doing. Like we would never have been interviewing somebody from like across the, I mean, when we interviewed when a few, uh, a few weeks ago, right. In Hong Kong. Yeah. That wouldn't have crossed my mind to have done this virtually a year ago. 
mm-hmm. with when even though adam knew when he probably wouldn't have said oh andrew yeah we should try and get in contact with her because right our spatial understanding was very different yeah it has changed a lot yeah and i also think there are some people who um are more responsive now to do these types of virtual events who has they got nothing else to fucking do right well yeah i mean that or also but they're also eager for the nourishment i think of having these types of conversations like what you said thomas they miss these opportunities right and, i mean um, when I said I mean, to that's Adam, why you started now, the podcast in the yeah. first place. Well, and I said, Adam, this is now the time to reach for the stars. With um, he didn't put it like that. Otherwise, I would have gone. <laughs> no, no, yeah, Adam doesn't enjoy phrases like that. Uh, <laughs> but no, Thomas, going back to what you're saying about the town hall, I really think that is so helpful for um, departments to hear. Especially, I know that there are administrators who listen to this podcast and that it serves as a model and i hope that what we're doing here can serve as a model with all different conversations because i think that that was just something to do weekly that allowed um gripes to happen but i mean i don't think that was the purpose is to gripe but at least you could have a space to talk about i'm feeling a little anxious with this situation in the department can we address this right Um, because that wasn't happening in the majority of departments right and i think especially for for younger graduate students right you're not quite settled in wherever you are yet and so at least knowing that the department cares about you in some way right i think that's that's probably very extremely helpful right and i'm i'm worried i would be worried that the takeaway i mean what you gave is a is a great example but i would be worried that the takeaway is well we don't have the budget our university doesn't have the budget to give all the students ipads so what's the point no the point is the listening the ipad is secondary if if anything like people people can come up with workarounds to a variety of situations that don't require buying technology for all of the students but just having the meeting is is a great starting point yes exactly for sure just having the the space to vent and it's not and right intent i've tried to stress this intentionality comes from a good place usually you know there's definitely some could argue that that's not always the case but i mean by that well that those who are trying to combat this isolation that Thomas is describing in departments, their intentions were usually, we want our graduate students to feel safe and secure. I mean, I don't think we can argue about that. Um, No, that works. But the approaches that I've seen, not just from the English department at Stony Brook, but from all different departments when I've just talked with friends has been very, just such divergent methods because there has been no universal um, way to discuss what to do when you're in a pandemic and you're now trying to reach out to grad students. Sure. Uh, so I would say that the rubber stamp has had been in our department in the fall, just email the chair or email the graduate director if you are having a problem and then set up a Zoom meeting one-on-one. That's- right okay for me if i take the initiative and i do feel comfortable doing that um 
Right. Depressed but, people aren't I, long on initiative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The people who are having mental health exacerbated are not going to say, yes, let me do that email because yeah. that puts a lot of honor, um, onerous onto yes. the with the mental health um, pressures. But thankfully, I will say, Thomas, that the model you're saying about the town hall is actually being implemented in the spring in the English department after a town hall that we had with our, um, the PhD students had with our graduate um, coordinator, who I'll call her name out because she has been an incredible uh, support system. So thank you, Teresa. This is your um, call out. Um, and Teresa, relayed all of our concerns and we now are doing a certain town hall um, every other week or some sort of system like that. So I think, like Adam's saying, that doesn't take any financial. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all going to buy you a Ferrari. I mean, first of all, that would probably not help. I mean, we can, we can acknowledge. <laughs> it would help. People would sell the Ferrari and use it to pay their rent. Um, no, we can, we can acknowledge that it takes, it takes something that's more difficult than financial outlay, mm -hmm. which is it takes emotional labor, right? Mm -hmm. We're asking people who are in a position of relative psychological and economic stability, which is to say department chairs and tenured professors and so on. We're asking them to take on the, the emotional labor of keeping their graduate students sane and healthy and productive. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that's, that's what they can do. Yeah, um, yeah. and like you're saying, Adam, um, and Thomas, you talked about this with the experimental work that you do. It's not like all of a sudden those pressures are relieved during a pandemic. Like, you know what, Andrew, you haven't finished the dissertation. We're just going to give you a PhD. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be, sure, I'll accept that proposition. But no one was then, the work, I won't say it always it multiplied necessarily, but those pressures intensified in ways that were, you know, related to our personal lives and just the isolation and depending on whatever situation you're in. So I don't want you to now gripe or think you have to tell us your sob story, Thomas, but like what was, you defended in, well, so you got, you received your PhD in August defended in July. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that, was that your timeline even before the pandemic? So you were able to stick to your timeline? Yeah, so so I had had a discussion with my advisor, I guess, around the new year that the plan was to graduate in the, in the summer. So I think- so Before was, all of this happened. Yeah, before the pandemic hit, that was the the idea was that for that next half year, I would finish up writing, and maybe try and do some other experiments to try and make progress on or or wrap up some some side projects I've been working on. Right, that was kind of the plan. So that got derailed to just finishing up the writing, <laughs> and then in the last couple of weeks before I left Chicago, I I tried to do a a storm of experiments before leaving, but. Um, okay, so 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 you certainly didn't keep to to the schedule that you had did not keep set to the, in January before the contagion 
ramped up. That's right. And then one of my. Uh, but you kept to the the main part. The main, the important part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then one of my colleagues, um, before the pandemic, she, I guess, more, yeah, my advisor and and her, they were planning on getting her to defend by mm -hmm. kind of early fall, and now that's been pushed into the the spring. So I think depending on where people were, it impacts you more or less, right? She had to do a lot more lab work to get ready for defending. And so now that just pushes pushes stuff off. Mm, yeah. It sounds like conversations I've had with those who were working on their dissertation proposal and hadn't really gotten into the writing yet. And I can imagine too, I'm in a groove where I meet with my advisor twice a month. So like I'm being held accountable. And now the writing groove, she's so excited about that because it keeps me focused and I'm fortunate um, with it. But if I was working on my, I've heard the stories about the comprehensive exams, the yeah. um, everything happening virtually with those, with those doing dissertation proposals. Yeah, it, it's pushed back. I feel yeah. it's pushed back those imaginative, creative, um, onerous projects. I mean, the dissertation, of course, what I'm writing is onerous, but I have a blueprint now. Like I've done all of that work and yeah. That's a really interesting point because I want to bring up something that I've, that I've been thinking about here and there. When I, nowadays, when I have to research something, I go to JSTOR and that's fine. Um, it's useful. But when I was living at Stony Brook, closer to around when Andrew and I actually met, um, one of the things that I really liked to do is I would look up a, a book that I needed and I would go into the stacks mm -hmm. and I would take that book and I would take most of the books adjacent to it on the shelves and I would bring those to one of the big comfy but really bad for your spine chairs in the library. I would yeah. dump them on the table and I would try to go through them in the course of an hour or two and make a couple of notes Mm -hmm. and decide which books I wanted to actually take out. And I mean, I still remember the smell of the books. I still remember the feel of those, the, the covers. I, all of that is part of the process of taking that information and storing it in your memory because we're not computers. We, we don't just input information. We input experience. Yeah. Um, and so when you access the, when I access the information, you have to access the experience as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and, and so that, that's gone, that, that whole, the, the possibility of that whole experience is gone. Uh, the local library here has been shut for going on a year, except by appointment only. Oh, wow. Um, see, I've been lucky. I'm able to actually browse the library shelves. Here, but again, it's a very location-based. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Depending on how the community feels about containing mm -hmm. uh, what the numbers are, I think it has to do more with the building and the circulation and this comfort, the comfort of the staff, right? The okay, library staff are the ones on the front line. Um, but if the infection rates are anything to go on, Suffolk County is being magnificently blasé about 
yeah. about um, taking precautions. Yeah, much worse than, um, much more lackadaisical here than where Adam is in Great Neck. They're taking it very seriously there. Um, don't want to die. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's a way, like to know that you can check out books and, um, you know, that provides me a lot of relief. And um, knowing that everyone has to follow the protocols, um, right, provides me comfort. But at the same time, what happens when someone violates the protocol? Then that's where all these businesses and libraries are. Um, uh, the onerous is on the staff um, to police and monitor this. Um, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't use yeah. the word because that has a very, uh -huh. they have a very loaded term, um, but to monitor this. Um, so I think though, yeah, what Adam's describing, I love that experience as well. Um, however, we are, I'm grateful, and I know Adam is, that we do have online archives and databases and everything I've relied on for my writing right now that I can find in 1851, maybe it's 1857, version of Euripides' tragedies, and it's all digitized for me. I'm just so thankful that scholars did that yeah. before the pandemic and that I did all of my archive research before I needed to write. So I was able to go to the British Library a year and a half ago and find all of the Oscar Wilde transcripts. I just think if I hadn't done that work, it's not that I wouldn't be able to write the chapter, I wouldn't have that dimension to add to the chapter. And yeah, I think about that sometimes, like what kind of creative thought is going to be lost or what's going to be gained right now? Because I don't think it's one or the other. I no, think it's not. It's, both is happening. There are opportunities that there weren't and. Yeah, but. I, I don't think it makes up, but it's important to at least pretend to be optimistic. Yeah. But, yeah. I, well, optimism is good. Um, Tom, Thomas, you were going to say something? Oh. No. No? Would well, you like are you, to? Are you, browsing, <laughs> are you browsing your local library in Massachusetts now? Oh. I, as a scientist, I, I don't think I've been in a library for, for years. Uh, <gasps> no. But all the journal articles Scandal. are online. Oh, no. This is... That was the... That I'm was so sorry the sentence that, that has just caused uh, <laughs> I had to explode. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. No, we've been but, doing um, virtual searching for all the literature for. See, forever. I thought we were going to convert you to a PhD in English. That was my goal. <laughs> it's a little late. I was like, he's going to follow. They've got their claws in him. I know. I'm like, him. maybe he'll become a Stephen King scholar. No. But, uh, but are I think... there Stephen King scholars? I mean, I assume there are people like promulgating theories about the Dark Tower on the internet or something like that. I'm sure there's like, a Stephen. That's a kind of scholarship, certainly. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think we should, we can't end this interview, which is wrapping up soon, without though saying that uh, your mother, Venta Vidovac, because uh, people will see your last name, and I think put two and two together, um, yeah, so. was on our podcast and talked all about her deep dive into Hamlet and Shakespeare and how all of that transpired. Um, but I know that you 
um, we're exposed to a lot of literature and um, I think you carry it within you in your heart, but how do you, you know, when you think about the humanities, um, what is your maybe relationship to them or even to literature? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. I've certainly, I think I enjoy reading books still a lot, but uh, I don't know. I think probably my closest relation to the humanities is, is just, uh, I, I think that fluid dynamics and the type of research I've been working on is, you know, very visually striking. And so I think since I've started doing this type of stuff, I've gotten more interested in, in just art and going to museums and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Okay. Um, but and I think you said Chicago had some of the um, most striking art museums that you had stepped foot in. Well, there, there's certainly the ones I've had the chance to visit the most. So I, I, I absolutely love the, the Art Institute there. It's fantastic. If you ever get a chance to go, I highly recommend it. They have some some wonderful stuff. But, I don't know. I think the. I mean, we're never going to get the chance to go anywhere again. But yes, we, we will. appreciate oh, the no. sentiment. Oh, Maybe no. they were in such an optimistic mood. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. I love what you say, though, um, Thomas, about just the images of what you study and how that can exist as a visual aesthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We 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 would definitely like your help in. Uh, curating some examples for the notes to this podcast so that people can see. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find some, some nice images for you. And we can include captions like, dude, this is totally trippy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll give it our own flavor. No, but, <laughs> but no, I just think this was, um, yeah, well, thanks for also indulging Adam and I with our questions of coming from a desire just to learn more about what kind of research you do, but also trying to um, understand it in as humanistic terms as possible. Right. I mean, I think, I think it's no, it's no accident that the, the flow of the conversation became easiest when we were talking about the dynamics of just doing work mm -hmm. because that's something that we very much have in common mm -hmm. yeah we're all and i would love to see more i mean at stony brook I, i'm pretty sure we're all part of the same union and i would love to see more if not collaboration collaboration you know is is a very is a very fickle creature but but um, solidarity is mm -hmm. is definitely is much more achievable and attainable. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't wait for your book, Thomas. On, I have to say it, uh, viscous fingering in the Renaissance. Oh no! Because <laughs> I will be the first buyer of that. God. I mean, are you working on just? Cause <laughs> I know we're almost at the end, but are you working on? I know you write articles, but does it ever happen that you do write a book? I think I think uh, it's pretty rare yeah. to write books, unless you're going to do a, a textbook. Mm. Or like um, one 
to the public like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Exactly. Are you the next like, Neil deGrasse Tyson? I don't think so. <laughs> we'll say we knew him when. <laughs> I wish, but. But, um, God. Yeah, I think. Write a self help book, Viscous Fingering and You. Yes. There we go. We'll pitch you. Here, Adam and I will pitch you different ideas, and you can see. Mm-hmm. We'll see which one makes you vomit the least. Um, the best I can think of is like a coffee book called Viscous Fingering in Public. One thing that's that's fun about the viscous fingering instability is it happens all over the place. So well, you said the trees, the rivers. Mm -hmm. If you ever, so one thing you can do if you have butter and a knife, right? If you just put your the knife on the butter that's a little soft and you pick it up, what will happen is that you'll actually get a viscous fingering pattern imprinted on the knife. Oh, because what happens is that. The, the melted butter is your fluid. And when you pull this knife off, the air comes in. So if you look at it, you'll see kind of a feathering pattern. Oh, that's cool. Left on the knife. So that's an example. Sometimes you can see this on sidewalks that have been freshly made. Sometimes you'll find interesting little uh, fingering patterns. Well, now that it's there. winter, people are probably going to see the Jack Frost patterns on their on their windows. Yeah. That branch in interesting and amusing ways. Well, I feel like now I can't look up. I'm not going to look at butter the same. I'm not going to see the sidewalk. In the sunlight. But I think that's the whole purpose with this is you gave us a, a um, term, but also um, a uh, physics principle that we can see in our everyday life. And that's what I really find so fascinating with the sciences is what you just did, giving us that concrete example that, you know, almost all of us have a stick of butter and now we can actually apply it. So um, A plus, Thomas. (laughs) Um, This was wonderful. Um, So thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thank Thomas. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. We'd like to remind our listeners that anybody who thinks they've got a great idea for an interview is welcome to call us. Anybody who has um, hate mail is welcome to send it to me, but not to Andrew. Andrew has said that he doesn't want to get hate mail, but I'm kind of curious. Well, I'm just going to forward it to you, Adam. No, but I don't think you should have to go through that experience if you haven't consented. That's true. That's true. I'm consenting to hate mail. I appreciate that. we don't want hate mail. That's We're the- civilized people. Speak for yourself. I want hate mail. Okay. I'll send and- you a letter soon. <laughs> It'll be the scariest thing you've ever Okay, well, I hope anyone and, um, can report me. But, okay. And for anybody who is interested in joining our, um, our several times a week Zoom-based writing workshop, you don't have to be an academic writer. You don't have to be a writer at all. You can just be somebody who wants to have some company while they work. Um, but the conversations tend to run academic, so be prepared for that, except when we're getting chatty, which around this time of year with um, the holidays and stuff like that, we kind of do, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. yeah um, got to us via Twitter, Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, Facebook, Ivory Tower Boiler. Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. I couldn't fit the whole thing in. Yep. And um, our Facebook Facebook group is is the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Correct. And um, yeah, contact us that way. And we really enjoy when we hear from our new members. So um, 
Yeah, thank you again, Thomas. Happy holiday season to everyone. Please, as we always say, our mantra is stay safe and healthy out there. Um, and we will check in with you all um, with actually our part two, which is Thomas's advisor that he spoke about, uh, Sid uh, Nagel. So tune in for that and we'll see what chatting with another physicist is like and whether it'll lead us to more catchy phrases. <laughs> Here is our bookmark to the episode. We now present Emily and Michael O'Brien performing Blackberry Blossom. Thank <laughs> you. 